Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Thoughtful Intentions. I'm your host, Fiona Winch, and I am joined today by my dear friend, Alex Kramer. Alex is a non-traditional pre-med student in almost every sense of the word. After graduating from Northwestern in 2018, she moved to New York to pursue her dreams of becoming a Broadway performer. She worked as a waitress, a fitness instructor, and even dabbled in the corporate world while working on her original jazz vocal album. After a medical diagnosis of her own and with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Alex decided to pursue another dream. A dream of becoming a doctor. She's currently in the throes of applying to medical school while working full-time at a clinical research facility. So without further ado, please welcome Alex. So hello, Alex. Hi. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. <laughs> um, I just wanted to give a bit of background on our friendship for anyone listening, um, because Alex and I are city friends. Um, we were introduced by a mutual friend, Leah Platt, in October of 2018, uh, which seems like forever ago. Yeah, honestly, point. that's crazy. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Um, and it was kind of like a blind setup. Like Leah was having a um, going away going party because she was going on tour. And yeah. she, te- I don't know what she said to you, but she texted me that she had a friend that had also just moved to the city that she thought I would be friends with and to come. Well, what happened is I texted her, how dare you go on tour? I don't have any girlfriends. How am I ever going to make friends? What are you doing to me? (laughs) And she was like, leave me alone. Let me set you up with someone. (laughs) It really was like a blind date situation. It really was. (laughs) And I I dragged Maddie with me because I didn't know anyone else that was going to be there. I didn't know if you were going to even show up. So um, Maddie came too. And the rest is history. It worked out. I'm glad you did. She was right. both of you. Um, okay. So I am really excited to talk to you. Um, I feel like I have been a fangirl friend of yours for a minute, (laughs) um, because it's just blown me away consistently how you have always kind of done what you want to do or feel inspired to do and you make it work for you, which I find incredibly, um, impressive. And I met you as a musical theater person. And then I got to know you as a fitness person, all the while watching you grow into like this jazz star. And then I I really think that my jaw probably hit the floor when you got a job at Adweek um, because it happened so seamlessly and it was just stunning to me. And then, so I guess by the time you told me that you were going to go to medical school, I wasn't as surprised because it was like, <laughs> Well, duh, this is Alex Kramer. What can't she do? Well, the Adweek um, job was like the fluke of the century. I didn't even interview for that job. It just like happened. Which is insane. I mean, these are pre-pandemic times. So um, yeah. caveat with that. But no, I was I, just always blown away by your um, seamless, seemed to be a very graceful pivots into different areas. So um well, thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, that's my version of your post-grad story, but I know that you probably have a different point of view. My version um, might be a little messier. Yeah, but... <laughs> a little messier. So I don't know. Do you want to just like get into that a little bit? Like, is this the post-grad that you envisioned for yourself? Well, I mean, I think when you graduate from theater school, you have to be in a headspace that's like, I'm going to be a Broadway star. Otherwise, you just, what were you doing for four years? Um <laughs> So I think I was definitely a little bit in that space, but also when I graduated college, I was so unfinished. I had just had vocal surgery that year. I hadn't fully recovered and gotten my voice back. I had broken my leg. I had had like a long-term relationship and like, I was still kind of a mess. And so I think especially my first year out of college, I was just kind of floundering, um, and that's okay. I think a lot of people in their young twenties do. And I learned a lot and I got to meet a lot of great people and I didn't feel like I really started to find my voice haha, metaphorically, I guess, <laughs> but actually, um, until I started writing jazz music. So mm-hmm. that is an ironic parallel. Um, but when I found the jazz community, I started to feel kind of at home and I started to feel like I had a little more momentum and a little bit of a path. Um, And then I started writing music. It was the first time I was really creating content, I guess, like creating new work. 
And so that made me feel a little more finished. But even then, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to end up. Um, because similarly to theater kids graduating theater school, like people graduating from jazz school are like, well, I have this very clear idea of like, these are the greats I want to play with. And like, these are the festivals I want to be at. And I didn't know any of that stuff. And I didn't have those goals. So I was still kind of searching for a while. Um, did, you, did you have those goals with musical theater? Like, yeah, did you I really mean, know the type of directors you would want to. Yeah, I really with? wanted to originate a role. I loved new work. I always did. I think because it's like a little bit more of a musical puzzle and you get a little more input. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that that was the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And then Wicked, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so when did jazz, like, was this a, a city thing? When did jazz come up for you? Was that something you when knew? When did jazz happen? Yeah. <laughs> No, well, I, like I said, I really got to know you as a jazz singer at, you know, early yeah. on. And I know we talked about auditions, you know, every once in a while, but like, I feel like we talked more about your jazz shows and I would go to your jazz shows. Um, so I don't know, for me, it's like just this thing that has always been with you, but I don't know that that's the case. Well, ironically, it kind of has like growing up, we always had jazz playing in the house. My parents like it. And I actually like as a kid played the flute for a really long time. Um, and I picked up alto saxophone as a kid because I was like, I want to be in jazz band. I love jazz. Um, so it's kind of always been a part of my life. And then when I went to college, I was like, I'm done with the flute. I won't even touch it. <laughs> so that like musician side of me, I feel like kind of got put in the back corner Mm -hmm. Um, and then towards the end of my time at Northwestern, one of my friends started a big band and they invited me to sing with them like my senior spring. And I loved it. It was so fun. And, um, that was the DW jazz orchestra that my friends, Sam and Lewis started. And luckily they kept going because that is like the band I got to make my Birdland debut with and all that. I was going to say, I have your whole, um, I pulled this from your LinkedIn actually. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, Alex has had the privilege of singing standards and originals in clubs in clubs across the country from Birdland to Club Coming in New York to Winters and Space in Chicago land area, sometimes with the incredible DW Jazz Orchestra. I love them. I love them so much. <laughs> um, but part of the reason I love them is they created something really cool where everyone in the band felt like they could add. So like when I wrote a song, I brought it to Sam. And I was like, I don't know, could we arrange it for the big band? And they have like tons of instrumentalists in the band writing originals, arranging for the orchestra. Like it's not just their baby. It's kind of like a communal baby, which is what makes it so wonderful. That's cool. I will say that I did play the saxophone once upon a time. um, And I really feel like I missed my calling now. I don't, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I feel like you were bad at it. Um, <laughs> you were hundred percent correct. Um, well, you know, my biggest setback was that I couldn't read music and I also had no interest in learning music. Um, Ooh, yeah, that, really, that tends to be a big one. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was not among the fourth graders. I don't think that I was really the standout. However, I feel like I did do a little bit better than Maddie who, um, played the clarinet with me. We did this duet. Oh yeah. I see her as being just God awful. Yeah. We did this duet for the Christmas pageant or whatever. And, um, uh, to her credit, I was only <laughs> supposed to play like the B key and the D key and one of them broke. And so I stopped playing halfway through and Maddie had to finish the whole, um, tune and was not happy about it in the slightest not happy at all so I have to give her the credit because um she really carried that one at least you knew when to call it yeah yeah (laughs) yeah maybe I didn't miss my calling however you do make it sound very compelling so I'm very glad that I got the opportunity to kind of be a part of it from the outside at least oh you definitely were you were you were a regular (laughs) cool yeah so 
while you are in New York, you're auditioning, you are exploring the jazz scene, and you are working a number of odd jobs. And um, I wanted to shout those out too, because you also happened to be good at all of those, which is crazy to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I don't know, what was the weirdest one to you? Or Or what was your favorite on the flip side? Okay, wait, the weirdest one I only had for like two weeks, um, but I was a stretch therapist for a little while. Um, oh my gosh, I don't wait, know if you've heard you of went it. into people's homes. No, no, no. That was, oh. that, I was a, uh, I would go to apartment buildings and teach like group fitness classes. That's okay. 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 I remember. But I worked for Limber and, um, you literally just stretched people. Really? Yes. Um, but the pay structure was terrible. So I quit. Like I thought I was going to pay for training and they didn't do that. And then I thought they paid hourly and they was only this like, paid, like in a studio or is this like, in yeah, the- it's in Tribeca. Honestly, I really recommend it. It's amazing. It's like a, it's like a good substitute for a massage, especially if you're an athlete or you're tight. It's a great service. It just, you know, the pay structure didn't really work for me as an employee. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And then what was your favorite one? Um, honestly, this is really funny because I kind of hated it at the time, but I look back so fondly at working at boss bar, which is a bar. I only worked at one summer. I like went home to Chicago with my parents. I was there for maybe eight weeks and I got this bar bartending job, cocktail waitressing job at a a 4am bar. So open till four or five in the morning. And it was right by my house. And it was are you oh, oh, I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, okay. I feel like you're, you seem like a morning person to me. I'm a, as long as I sleep eight hours, I don't really care when it is person. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that would work for bartending then. Yeah. But it was crazy. It was so ridiculous. We would get like white collar happy hour followed by like service industry rush followed by like blue collar happy hour followed by everyone pre-gaming clubs, followed by people who didn't want to go clubbing, but were still out, followed by everyone got kicked out of the clubs. It's too oh, late. Good. They should be home, but they're at our bar. It was I remember you saying that this is where you were allowed to um, have an opinion about the patrons or, you know. Oh, I could kick out anyone I wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if it's 3 a.m. and you're annoying me, I, I don't care. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I feel like um, personally, my favorite of your odd jobs was physique because I have never been in better shape in my entire life. And I know that that was uh, everyone's favorite. I had (laughs) two gas passes to every class. All my friends are like, I was so fit when you worked at physique. Me too. I was also fit then. It was was (laughs) crazy to me. Um, I also did pass Olio the other day and it was very busy. Uh, My cousin asked what that restaurant was. And I was like, my friend used to work there. So your listeners are going to listen to this and be like, who is this person? Why has she not worked one job past one month? And I just worked nine jobs at a time, everybody, nine jobs at a time. No, actually I was just, um, working on my resume for this course. And I said that, uh, to the advisor, I was like, listen, I have had so many jobs and I was at them for a decent amount of time. I, you know, I'm, I left in good standing. I have no idea how to pick which ones should go on this thing, you know, keep it to one page. But like in 2019, I worked six different jobs in two different States, like alone, you know, there's a lot to, my resume is a mess. Yeah. Yeah, Mess. I like clump them. I'm like various waitressing experience. And Mm -hmm. then I have a little list of where I've worked and which States it was in. Well, it's hard to know what, what people will appreciate because I've heard plenty of people obviously, talk about how waitressing experience is so transferable and how they like to see that on a resume. And I'm like, okay, well I did it. It just is not on there at this moment because maybe someone else thought that something else should be a priority, you know, but like, I don't know. Yeah. I, that's something I've run into with applying for med school too. It's like very similar. I'm I'm like, well, I don't know. I waitressed for eight years. I feel like that should be on there. It's thousands of hours of my life. Um, and it's definitely like transferable, but I don't know how applicable it is to medicine. Yeah. Well, you also just don't know who the hiring manager is because if it's, or, you know, in your case, the admissions director, what they, what their life experience is, what they care about, what they'll relate to. It's, it's such a crapshoot, but 
Yeah. I have faith. I have faith in you. I am optimistic, cautiously optimistic. Yeah, totally. But okay. Sorry if I jumped the gun there. <laughs> no, you, no, you didn't jump the gun at all. I because I was wondering within this context, within doing these side hustles, and like you said early on, you were floundering a bit, but did you like were you ever worried or bummed out? Yes. Dude, what? Of course. I like <laughs> listen, you're good at hiding it. <laughs> You're very, you come off very confident, even as a close friend. Um, I wouldn't be able to see that as much as you probably feel it. Gosh, when I worked at physique, I was like, I was exhausted because I was waking up at four or five to teach in the mornings. And I was writing my name down on open call lists for musical theater. And then I was going and doing like errands in the morning. Maybe I'd get a quick nap. And then I would go sit in like a open call waiting room, maybe audition, probably not. I was so discouraged. Mm -hmm. And then I would try to go to the gym and then go to a jazz club and be out until midnight to maybe sing at a club and like meet some people and hear some music. I was so tired. (laughs) Um, And also like auditioning and my early stuff in jazz, it, it it felt a lot like riding a stationary bicycle. Like I was doing a whole lot of pedaling and nothing was happening. Mm. Um, and everything happened in like fits and spurts. So it felt like nothing. And then all of a sudden I was doing my first gig and then nothing. And then all of a sudden I had written half an album. <laughs> like, right. so I definitely had periods where I felt really great about it and periods where I was like, this is terrible. Get me out of here. Yeah. I mean, as you know, I felt the same way for a long time. So I, I understand. I just, I don't know. You can't always, yeah, but you just can't always see it on people. You know, there's just, some people are just better at hiding it or just are less likely to complain or just seem to have more energy. And even if they don't feel like that. So I don't know. I, I feel like it's important to point out sometimes. I, well, I also, I try to be positive. Like it's something that I'm really conscious of and really try to bring out And so I'm glad it works (laughs) Um, because also like if I'm not going to change my circumstances, I'm not going to complain about them. That's kind of how I feel about it. I think that's a great way to feel. (laughs) Um, So I changed my circumstances a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, on that, I kind of have like a two part question here because. um, Okay. I wanted to ask about you, you and change, because from the outside, I mean, a lot of people fear change and and don't necessarily see it as much of like a growth opportunity. Um, but it seems to be something that you do well. And I just because I know you, I wonder like how you feel if you feel like any of that relates to how many times you've moved or you know yeah. being in an only child being independent, um, like nature versus nurture, like uh, your interests, like, is it, is it because in part you're like an inherently curious person or your parents introduced you to a lot of things? Like where, like, where is all this coming from? I think there are definitely a lot of factors, but change is scary. Like change is scary for me too, just because I, you know, move to New Orleans on what felt like a whim doesn't mean that I didn't lie in bed the first two nights staring at the ceiling being like, what the heck did I just do? Because I did. (laughs) And I called my mom crying. And I was like, I've made a terrible mistake. Um, And then four days later, I like made a bunch of friends. And a week later, I met my boyfriend and I got a job and everything felt like it was falling into place. So that was fortunate. But like, change is scary, no matter how practiced you are. Um, I do think moving around helped me growing up. I moved, I mean, uh, growing up, I lived in three States. Yeah. Walk us through that a little bit, just for those that don't know. Yeah. Um, we just moved a lot. I get asked if I'm an army brat a lot. I'm not, um, we just moved, uh, we moved houses, I think like 12 or 14 times before I graduated high school. And then I moved school districts, which I would say is like the biggest shift because you have to meet all new people, um, three times. So that was hard, but also made going to a new place and meeting a whole new set of people a lot less scary. Um, do you consider yourself an extrovert? Yes. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't, I've clearly made a lot of assumptions about how I think that you are, but I don't want to make <laughs> Certainly an extrovert. Um, <laughs> I but I also think like, I don't know. I think change is not as scary because I'm not that afraid to fail. Like if I make a change and it doesn't work, whatever. And I also understand like there is some luxury associated with that. Like if I make a change and I mess up and I have my family to fall back on, I have like really supportive friends. Like I I have a lot of resources and I have a lot of support in my life across the country. And so that makes it really easy to take risks and not everyone is in that situation. And so I get that, but I try to capitalize on my situation. (laughs) Right. No, that makes sense. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. And while we're on this moving thing, mm-hmm. I'm going to take it back a minute because yeah. as I said, I, <laughs> from my perspective, which is not as relevant as your perspective, which is why you're on the podcast right now. Well, it's your um, podcast, so. I know, but like, I just, I have seen you as like an independent and decisive kind of autonomous human being. Um, and I feel like there's evidence in that, especially when you went and traveled alone by yourself before, uh, starting your post-grad kind of journey. Why are you making a face right now? (laughs) I'm making a face because I literally talked about how I was a disaster human right after graduating college. And I was a disaster human on that trip. (laughs) Well, okay. So just for those who don't know, you went on a solo trip after graduating to multiple for how long two months to multiple different countries um well which is something that yeah 12 countries are you kidding me that is something that a lot of people would not have the guts to do I would say do it (laughs) if you were considering doing it do it it was so fun but I didn't have the guts to do it either. Like, (laughs) but you did it. (laughs) I know, but I, I like panic booked it. I had been thinking about it for years. I was, I wanted to do it with my, you know, boyfriend who we, you know, we broke up my senior year and I was like, I still want to go to Europe. What the heck I'm going to book it. And I booked it before I could really even think about it. Um, and I'm so glad that I did because I wouldn't have done it if I had thought about it for too long. And it was the best thing I've ever done. It was amazing. Um, but it was really scary. Also, it was terrifying. I remember my my first hostel that I got to was like a little hostel outside of Lisbon. Um, and yeah, outside of, yeah, outside of Lisbon. And I was panicking. Like I was on the brink of a full-blown panic attack. And then the first person I met was this girl who had graduated from Northwestern, where I also went to school two years prior. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. We're good. We're good. I have a friend. We're good. (laughs) Did you ever feel unsafe? Yes, definitely. There were times I felt unsafe. Um, Ironically, those were the points in my trip where I had met up with friends Um, but I also think like, I didn't want to go to Morocco alone. I went with a friend, um, and that we tried to do Morocco on a budget. We were in Fez, which is the religious capital of Morocco. And we were in the old city where there are no maps and no cell reception. So that was a little freaky. Um, but it turned out great. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I'm glad it worked out. Like just traveling alone. I would, if you're a woman, I wouldn't travel alone to Morocco unless you have the money to pay for security. Wow. I, I, I mean, but also I've only been to Fez, so I really can't speak about the whole country. That would be. What other, um, what other places you go to? Um, like on the trip, the whole trip, the whole trip. Okay. I started on a little cruise with my grandma for 10 days. Which was really fun, actually. Very nice for her. That was her graduation gift to me. Hmm. Um, We've traveled a lot together. And we did, like, all of Scandinavia. So Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway. We ended in Amsterdam, which was a hilarious place to go with my grandma. Nothing like bringing (laughs) your grandma through the red light district. She did take pictures with the women in the windows. No way. Yes. Yes. Way. That's hilarious. It was terrible. Um, (laughs) And then I flew down to Morocco and met up with a friend um, from college. 
And then we actually left Morocco a little early because neither of us felt like the most safe. Um, so we went to Lisbon for a couple of days. Love Lisbon. Amazing food. And then I went to Cascais, which is a little beach town outside of Lisbon, south of Portugal. I worked my way around Spain. I went to a jazz festival in Spain, which was so much fun. Um, and I had some other friends from college meet up with me for that jazz fest. And then, oh, I was like on an island off the coast of Spain and I didn't know where I was going to go next. And I was like, where's the next flight? And it was going to Venice. So I went to Venice. So bold. Yeah, it was fun. It was like a $20, 20 euro flight. It was amazing. Ryanair or something. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) Um, And then I worked my way around Northern Italy into the um, French Riviera, which Mm. I loved. Um, and then I went to London and my dad met up with me in London. He had never been, um, I had been on an orchestra tour in high school. So I showed him all around and then I went to Paris and my mom met me in Paris and that was my last city. Neither of us had been, and we both wanted to go and we had so much fun. Oh, that's awesome. It was great. It was a great trip. I love that. I can't, I can't, God, I can't wait to travel again. Did I tell you (laughs) that my mom and I are going to Iceland in November? Oh, that's going to be amazing. Like so random. Everyone loves Iceland. Oh, you're going on that, that mother daughter trip with a bunch of friends, right? Yeah. yeah. That'll be so fun. They booked it in like March and they asked me about it. And I was like, yeah, ask. Sure. Also maybe follow up with me in October. Cause I can't really think about this right now. (laughs) (laughs) If you have it on the calendar, you go. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So you've done a lot. That's pretty clear. You've tried, you've tried a lot of things. If you don't I've tried a lot of things, say that you've done a lot of things. You've tried a ton of things. Yeah. Um, and now we are transitioning towards med school. You went back and got your post back. Yeah. And you just finished that. Um, was this on your radar before? I, I mean, yeah, I don't know anyone else that like, uh, I guess that's not true. I guess I know one person who was a musical theater major who was also interested in medicine and might actually at, at this point have started to pursue that. But I don't know. It's it's seemingly less traditional than your average path from theater, which is why I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the like great irony of my life is I had it right when I was 17 um when I applied to college originally I applied to all but two schools biology no way and I wanted to be a doctor um are you serious I don't know that I only applied to Northwestern and Carnegie Mellon as a theater major because I felt like I would like have enough security graduating from one of those programs where I would either for sure get work as a musical theater actor or for sure be able to pivot to something else anything else um, yeah. And so Which you were right about, I was right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that's good. Um, yeah. And so I think within six months of graduating, I had kind of that like post-grad on we that we had talked about and I didn't feel like I was on the right path. I hadn't really hit my stride with the jazz stuff. And I started thinking about medicine again. I think at the time I had started dating a med student and I was like, this is fun. I love this, you know, and I started rewatching Grey's Anatomy and all this stuff. And I was like, medicine is cool. Um, but it, I mean, it wasn't really until I had like a medical experience that I felt really drawn to the path. Um, even before I had the medical experience in kind of a year and a half out of school, I had started really seriously considering post-bacs. I'd started looking them up started looking at the application requirements, but I hadn't pulled the trigger on it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you um, just, I didn't know what a post-bac was before you went. So totally. You know yeah. It's a weird thing um, because it's not a degree program. So basically there are two different types of post-bacs that you can do. There is a career changing post-bac or like what's called a GPA boosting post-bac. So post-bac stands for post-baccalaureate work. So it's after you've gotten your bachelor's degree and you essentially go back and you take your pre-medicine requirements. So when I was a theater major, I didn't take biology or chemistry or physics, any of the things that I need to apply to medical school. And so I went back to school and I took all those classes. 
And that was my post-bac program. This was this past year. This was this past year. So I started it in May of 2020 and I, I finished in May of 2021, but I'm continuing to take online classes for the next year. Cause there are some like higher level classes that I'd like to take and be a little more prepared. Um, but like chemistry, physics, orgo, all of that is done. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. there are GPA boosting postbacks for people who have taken those classes where you can go in and take upper level science classes that are not master's program classes and just try to like give your GPA that little boost it might need because not all of us, including myself, we're all that focused freshman year of college. I know. I honestly, I wish I didn't tell myself um, that I wasn't good at science because I have no idea. You know, it wasn't my best subject, but I also stopped trying because I didn't, I just told myself I wasn't, it wasn't for me. I didn't have that type of brain, but it's clearly incredibly important, especially right now. So I think it's just super cool that you're, you have the opportunity to explore it at this point and pursue it. That's exciting. Honestly, really fun. And getting to work in the medical field during COVID was also really exciting. Like I, I finally felt like I was helpful. Um, I, that's like a cliche. You're not supposed to say like, I want to be helpful when you're applying to med school, but it's true. Like when I went into the arts, I didn't do it. I mean, I did it a little bit because I love performing, but I also did it because I wanted to make an impact on people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I wanted to like bring people joy or help them see things in a new light. And I didn't really feel like I was doing that when I was performing. Um, or rather I didn't feel like I was doing anything that someone else couldn't do. Um, I was surrounded by so many incredible artists who were putting out great stuff and like, well, I think my music is good and my shows were fun. They weren't like next level. And I felt like, especially when COVID hit, there was a lot of need in the medical field for people. Um, like (laughs) it was really an all hands on deck situation. And I felt like I would be more useful in a different industry. And also like I would find a lot of joy in that industry as well. So that was a big driving force too. So, so did this coincided as well with your medical situation? Um, I don't, I don't know if, I don't remember if COVID happened first, but I know that that was also a factor. COVID happened second. (laughs) second. Okay. Did you want to speak at all about that situation? Yeah. So basically in late January of 2020, so really right before COVID, the timing is just right up in there. Um, I went to the OBGYN for what I thought was going to be just like a routine pap smear, check in, see what's up, um, and re redose my birth control. And I was diagnosed with PCOS, which stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's a really common syndrome. It's not actually like a disease or condition. It's a set of symptoms, um, which really just goes to show like how little research has been done on it. Like it's not even a disease. It's just a set of symptoms that we don't know what else to call it. So it's PCOS. Um, So I found out I had that and my doctor didn't deliver the news to me in an amazing way. Uh, She was notorious for having walked into the room she turned to me, she went, you have PCOS and you're never going to have kids. I'm going to up your dosage of birth control. Let me check on your billing. No. And then she left. <laughs> Are you serious? I am completely serious. Um, you must have told me that at some point, but it's just probably so in tears. Yeah. So that's probably not what I out. Yeah. Um, and I always wanted to have kids. Like if at any age you asked me what I wanted to be or what I wanted out of my life, like the answer was kids. I wanted to be a mom and I still do, but to have someone walk in and be like, you can't have kids is, um, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the fact of the matter is that may not be true. It might be true. I don't know. We're going to find out when we find out insensitive, if nothing else, it wasn't great. And, and um, It kind of sealed it for me though, that I was like on the fence about going into medicine. And then this thing happened and I was like, wow, 85% of my feelings right now were so avoidable. Right. Like, so it was more like 
bedside manner than actually understanding. Yeah. And she didn't, she didn't even tell me what PCOS stood for. Like I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what my options were. I had no idea what it meant long-term and she didn't even make an effort to explain it to me. Um, It was was so, I, you know, I also, I don't want to throw her under the bus completely because I went to so many OBGYNs in my life and no one found this before her. So clearly, you know, she has strong skills as a doctor and this interaction like wasn't one of them. I don't want to shame her, but, um, that interaction for me did send me over the edge. And I started applying to post within a week. Jeez. Wow. So at this point, do you, um, do you feel like you can understand the condition more because you understand the biology of all of it more? You're just not, or you're not that specific in your studies yet. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, because I've definitely been reading up on my specific condition just out of interest. Um, but also no, because there's not really a lot of science around it right now. Like very little research has been done on PCOS and frankly, a lot of women's health issues. There's a huge disparity between men's health research and women's health research. Like if you want to find a research study on anything relating to prostate cancer, you can. And that is something that primarily affects men. But if you want to find something on PCOS or endometriosis or uterine fibroids, like there might be options and it's definitely getting better, but there are way fewer studies and they're shorter term because it's now, now coming to light now something that's being studied and even fewer for women of color. Yes, absolutely. That's it's just so crazy to think of in like 2021 that that can still be the case with all of the advancement in technology as well. Well, and what's tough about research and medicine, like with the exception of these COVID vaccines, if you want to develop a new drug or a new treatment or a new procedure, it's going to take you 10 years. So if we start now, like doing more research on women's health, making new procedures for, for women with endometriosis or um, new diagnostic practices for diagnosing it. Because a lot of people with endometriosis, they go in and they're like, I'm in pain. And their doctor's like, "Eh, well, sorry. Um, or, you know, any of that stuff, it just, it's going to take 10 years for us to really see a difference. And so (laughs) a, we need to start pronto and B we need to be really conscious of that in the next 10 years, in the next decade, in the next 40 years, because the the research disparity, it takes time to close. Right. God. So that is part of your goal with this pursuit. And alongside that, is it still the case that you want to be an OBGYN as well? Yeah. I mean, as of right now, I would love to be an OBGYN. I go back and forth on Mm. thinking like it would be so great. Um, A, because it's related to the thing that has afflicted me. B, because delivering babies is generally happy medicine. (laughs) Um, And not all medicine is happy, but babies, very happy. Um, And then I also go the other side. Like if I continue to have fertility issues, if I really can't conceive, it might be a little too close to home for me to help other women have babies. Mm. Like that, that might be a little hard for me to deal with day in and day out. Yeah. And also OBGYN has terrible hours because babies don't know what time it is. They come whenever they want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is very self-aware of you. So um, (laughs) I'm really, it's a long, long path. I don't have to decide. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to see what you discover within the field about yourself and about yourself in this position and what appeals to you. Um, yeah, I mean, I know that you're in the middle of these applications right now, so a lot of it probably feels completely up in the air, but. Oh my gosh. It is like nothing I've ever experienced. The application process for med school is insane. Um, For context, right before this started, Alex told me that she has to write 150 essays for med school applications. I would just like to explain that a little bit. Let me give you a, a, a two minute overview on how med school applications work. Yes. Step one, you apply. There's like a, if you did the common app, there's like a big application for everyone. You write your essay. There's a work and activity section where you can write up to 15 little essays about like every job you've ever had. 
or in my case, a third of the jobs you've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) And then you send your application to all your schools and you pay a fee for like every school you apply to. So that's step one. That's called the primary. Step two is like if for your undergrad, you probably did supplementary applications. This is called the secondary application. Schools reach out to you and they're like, we want you to write us three to seven more essays and pay us a hundred more dollars. And so you go through every school's portal and you write them all the essays they want and you send them a picture of you and your passport and you answer a bunch of questions about your demographics. And if your parents have ever worked for their school and um, and then you pay them a hundred bucks and you wait. And then you wait and you wait and you wait and maybe you get an interview invite and then maybe you interview and then maybe you get accepted. Maybe. Um, but the secondary application to potential acceptance or not acceptance could take up to nine months. That's so crazy. it's really a hurry up and wait situation. That, that like the whole time that you were explaining that, I just kept thinking about how unaccessible this feels for disenfranchised communities to go through this process or afford it or it's terrible there is an amcas b waiver um so if you are below the poverty line you can qualify for fee waivers i think it is completely broken because the only way to qualify for fee waivers is if you are below the poverty line your parents are below the poverty line and everyone in your life is below the poverty line So if anyone around you, like your parents, your significant other, you has made even slightly more than literally the poverty line, you will not qualify for fee waivers. And I think there's a huge gap between impoverished and like completely everyone in my family is impoverished and able to pay up to $5,000 in one year for medical school applications. Yeah. That's a pretty big gap. Jeez. Yeah. I also, this is something I just realized like in the last few weeks, because I'm working full time while I fill these out. Um, If you're really like a paycheck to paycheck person, you work a a minimum wage job or even just any hourly job where you can't take PTO. um, If you get invited to interview, that is a financial hit too. Mm. Previous to COVID, you had to fly yourself to every place to interview, put yourself up for the day and then interview. Now they have some video options because the pandemic is still, you know, kind of going on. And so a lot of schools are doing virtual interviews, but after COVID that might come back where you have to fly yourself to whatever place you're applying. And and we're talking like multiple places because the odds are you have to apply to a lot of schools to, you know, get a shot, right? Like how many schools are you applying to? I personally applied to 30, which is definitely on the high end. Yeah. Um, but the average acceptance rate at like, except your in-state university, but the average acceptance rate at a school is around 2%, if not lower. So they like, I think Tulane got like 17,000 applicants for a class of under 200 people. How do they even decide? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I want to know too. It's it's without the thing. As you said, have to be enough people that are like pretty similar to. I just I don't know. Yeah, well, and the crazy thing is, in a lot of parts of the country, there are physician shortages, and thousands of I'm sure qualified med school applicants are being turned away every year. Like what for? Is it's just there's just not enough. Well, also, it takes a lot of time and resources and money to train a medical candidate into a doctor. So I guess I wouldn't want to like like, risk for error too. If yeah, I wouldn't want to encourage schools to take on more trainees than they could handle. Yeah. But um, especially schools in underserved areas with not as many medical professionals, I'm like, let's get you some funding to get you some more slots. Like, what do you need? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This feels like a very catch 22 and a really, really bad one. It's a, it's tough. I, I, this year I've been able to learn a lot more about our medical system and it is broken in so many ways and it is filled with like the most well-intentioned people. So that is pretty difficult to see. I love hearing you and Courtney talk about it because, um, you both are just so 
so much more educated about it than I am. And <laughs> I don't feel like I can really contribute anything, but it is really fascinating and also scary to hear about. I like talking to Courtney about it too. I think I that what's interesting is like, we took two different approaches to medical reform, right? I was like, I will do it patient by patient. I will be like the difference in people's lives individually. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I will fix the system from the top down. I love it. Yeah. You need both. You, yeah. you need approach attacks from all fronts. I know. I, I'm hoping to talk to her at some point too, about her perspective in the, um, in healthcare and, and all of that, but, um, I digress. Um, <laughs> okay. So thank you for explaining a lot of that and giving a lot of insight. I really appreciate it. And for also sharing, um, the medical situation that you've been going through, because I know that that is a very vulnerable, um, matter. And I just appreciate you being open about it. Uh, sorry. What did you want? Did you want to? Oh, it's just been, it's been kind of fun to be open about it because honestly, a lot more people I know have it than I thought. And, um, yeah, it's a diagnosis I share with a lot of people and it's something that we don't talk about and we should, cause there's no shame. (laughs) No, absolutely not. I mean, listen, I didn't even ever have health class. I would not know I got me neither. I would not know what to look for in most scenarios. Um, yeah, I, my seventh grade very reliant class. on like these doctors to kind of know things, and maybe that shouldn't be the case all the time. It's it's really hard to become an advocate for your own health because there's almost too much information out there. Like if you were to Google PCOS, you could find an article that is credible that says anything that says like, go on birth control. That says, don't go on birth control. That says, eat this. That says, don't eat this. Like it's very hard to know what is the truth. And you don't want to be like a hypochondriac. That would be, that'll be bad. No, but even if you like have a diagnosis and you know, like the NIH might say, do this and Mm, Mayo clinic, a very reputable hospital group might say the complete opposite. Like it's very confusing. So have you found some kind of like solace knowing people firsthand that you can reference for experiences and all that, or just, it's just truly that there's not enough science and it's more of an emotional connection. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could be like, yeah, I've helped my friends find like diets that worked for them to manage their symptoms, but I haven't, but there's something really nice in just knowing you're not alone. Um, And having someone who's going through what you're going through, um, even if it's a little different, just knowing you're not alone in what you're going through and being able to talk to someone about it is nice. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that again. Um, and on that note, there are two kind of things that I was wondering about that have to do with recent conversations of ours. Um, one of them, I feel like you've already answered because I was going to ask you if you feel any imposter syndrome and yes, yes. (laughs) I, I, that was the conclusion that I've reached per this conversation is yes, you definitely feel it. If you don't always show it. Absolutely. I saw a quote today that said, be brave enough to suck at something new, which I thought was just great. (laughs) Um, but the second question, which is in reference to a recent conversation we had is uh, what is it like to be known as multiple different versions of Alex. Like you were saying how a lot of your med school friends know you as this med student, Alex, and you know, the girls in New York know you as jazz singer, Alex. And I I can only imagine how many iterations of Alex there are given all of your interests and um, pursuits. So what's that like? Yeah, we were, it was really funny. I don't think I noticed until I came back to New York because when I moved to New Orleans, I was so completely on this med school track. Um, like I wasn't singing jazz. I technically have a singing job, but victory I, it, bells. yes, I'm a victory bell at the world war II museum, but it's not my primary focus or the thing I talk about or the thing I'm working towards that my friends are aware of. Mm-hmm. And so my New Orleans friends, like everyone I've met down here knows me as like pre-med Alex and no one in New York knows me that way at all. And so when I went back, it was like, it was pretty jarring. <laughs> um, I felt like I had to be a different me in some ways. Oh, no, like in um, only in some contexts, like 
I found myself playing the name game when I was at jazz clubs with like people I had met in New Orleans jazz, but I'd only met a handful because I've only been out a couple times because I've been studying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, so I felt like I had to live up to both roles. Um, but I'm not both people anymore. Like they're both part of me, but I have definitely like shifted focus, but it's kind of sad to leave an old you behind, you know, like, I feel like at least maybe not these, um, people that you haven't seen in a while, but do you feel like at least your close family and friends are, have been, you know, transitioning with you, like as you've pivoted? Yeah. What's funny to me is, uh, the people who have known me like my whole life, my parents, our family friends, like my good friend Camden, who I've been friends with since I was five. When I told them I wanted to go to med school and I was going to do this, they were like, that makes sense. Right. No one was surprised. <laughs> no one was no, like, didn't even skip a beat. <laughs> That's cool. When I told like college friends who had really only known me as like feeder Alex, they were like, wow, that's confusing. And then when I explained it to them a little more, they were like, oh, okay, I see that. So the people who have been with me through the whole ride and know all the iterations, I think, I think they get it. Um, and the people who are newer to the ride are going to see more iterations and they'll get it eventually. <laughs> but that's what I love about it because, I mean, it, the path makes sense because it's you. And that's how I have... That, that's yeah. why I started this in the first place. I, I feel like I've talked about this recently. My dad has one of the most random paths of all, but it makes sense because it's him, you know, it's, it, it's all of his interests and they're just bundled up into my father's body. Like it's just, it's just his personality. It's his passions. It's his path. So it makes sense to me. And I love that. I love, um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we've kind of gotten off to a place where, um, people are feeling the need to like brand themselves in a very specific, uh, linear type of way, type of path. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in exploration and trying new things and being open-minded, um, and self-aware in that matter. So I, that's why I have frequently admired what you're doing and, um, big fan. <laughs> Well, thank you. I completely agree. I think being on this path specifically with the medicine stuff, I feel like more of an imposter because in like the pursuit of becoming an expert, longevity matters. Um, And so like when I was doing jazz, yeah, same thing. If you want to be a jazz legend, you're going to play forever. Um, But if you want to write some songs and sing in some clubs, like you could have just picked it up. That's okay. (laughs) Um, But with medicine and being a doctor and all of those things, like you can't just pick it up. You're going to be in it for a long time. And I really haven't been in a lot of things for a long time. So I think that that is an intimidating prospect to me. Um, but the thing that comforts me is that medicine contains multitudes and the role of doctor of physician contains a lot of different roles within it. So it's not just training for like, now I will be an OBGYN and I will see women between the ages of 13 and 18 every day and consult them on their birth control. Like, no, being an there, OBGYN is so many different things. And there are so many roles that you just don't even know about yet. Right. Cause I'm barely even in it. Like yeah. I've, I've just passed dip my toe in this. Water. I think that's like, the amazing part is like that the deep, I mean, I, I still stand by the fact that I think the more you explore just the more well-rounded human you become, but um, it is also cool that the deeper you dive into a particular industry, the more roles and positions you find out about that they just aren't going to show up on your college catalog, you know, course situation. You know what I mean? Like, no. And in the same way that like moving to new places, I met people who work jobs. I didn't even exist. No existed. Like my boyfriend works at a grain elevator. What? I would never have known that. No idea. No idea. Still no idea. Super cool though. Right. Cause everyone I met before worked in finance or was a waiter or was an actor. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I am fully aligned and I agree. And I, I just, I love that for you. Um, and okay, before I let you go, because I know that I've kept you for a minute, but 
It's okay. I love talking about myself. I'm really on a kick with it with all these secondaries. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, because you are, you know, a well-rounded human and you are multifaceted and are not defined by one or the other at any point in time. Um, how do you think, do you think, and how do you think music might continue to play a role in your life? Is the album something that you still foresee in your future endeavors at some point in time? Or like, are you just on this ride right now and you'll see where it fits in down the line? Yeah, I will never be happy in a life without music. So like, it is always going to be a part of my life. Um, the shape it's in, we'll see. I would love to make the album. It's going to look really different than what I had anticipated. Uh, Originally, you know, I was looking to make a $20,000 album that would make me award eligible. And now I want to make something for me, um, which is going to be a lot cheaper. It's going to be a lot more personal, less smaller. um, But it's for me because I don't know, when I was trying to make music for others, that was the goal and I had to make it big. And now that I'm doing other things for others, I can just make my music for me. (laughs) Um, But the nice thing about jazz is anytime I want to sing, I can walk into a club. I can be like, I'm a singer and I can call a tune. And that isn't any part of the world. Like I have done that in Spain. I could go do that in Japan. I could go do that in new Orleans. I could go back and do it in New York And there's something really, really comforting in knowing that if I need it, I can just go get up on a stage and sing. I have chills. It's so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Okay. Well, I won't keep you any longer, but I do want to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can find you. Um, And I also want to plug your potential future knitting company. Oh my God. No, I no more (laughs) potential future companies. No, it's not happening. Um, she, I ordered all that yarn for my quote, master Etsy. knitter. Knitter? Can I say, is that a word? Knitter? Yeah. Yeah. Master. Yeah. I'm an experienced knitting teacher, actually. Um, no, I bought all this like jumbo yarn to make those bulky blankets. I bought. There's one on my bed out. right now. I, I bought one from Alex and it's beautiful. Um, and I gave them always housewarming gifts or ship them to friends or people were like, can you make one for me? I'll buy it from you. And I was like, yep. And now the yarn is gone and I'm never buying anymore. <laughs> okay. So a quarantine project. <laughs> no, no more quarantine. No, no more. No, it was a quarantine project. <laughs> Except for it wasn't like I did it all in the last few months or when people requ- requested it of me. Cause you it did you try to pick it. You decided to pick it up when you were busiest. I decided to pick it up in quarantine, but I didn't follow through until I was busy. Knits by Kramer. (sighs) I'm sorry. I'm I'm a buffoon and I procrastinate with my other skills. I'm not going to plug it. Um, Don't ask Alex for blankets or or knitting. uh, Absolutely do not. But you can buy one from Southern Knit. I love hers. Those are great. That's fair. Um, You can admire them on her Instagram if she knits herself more sweaters because they're beautiful. (laughs) that was a tangent that one sweater is way too warm to wear I've literally never worn it out it's so hot Instagram you know it's like it really fools you doesn't it it's like the thickest yarn in the world and it's wool well you just need to come back to New York then and then you well if no it was too hot for New York um I will bring it to Minnesota when I visit my boyfriend's family okay there we go okay plug your stuff before I forget okay um I don't know. You can follow me on Instagram at Alex Hope Kramer. Um, I'm on private right now so that med schools can't find me, but you can. I'll <laughs> let you. <laughs> okay. Yay. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I loved it. I had a blast and I'm so glad that we got to chat, even though it wasn't in person. Thank you for having me. I'm honestly flattered. Uh, you're so funny. Uh, no, I am. We, before we do this, Alex is like, what would I talk about? I'm like, Alex, everything <laughs> you've done. What do you mean? I still feel that way. <laughs> I love it. I'm um, going to be like a, a pediatric neurosurgeon and I'm going to be like, but what would I talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, you are actually closing out the first year of the podcast. Oh my God. So, I'm honored. Yeah. Honored. You'll, you'll be number 19 and then 
the next one is going to be my dad for a part two for a little kickoff the, the wow. year. I'm the lead up to Mr. Winch. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of anyone better. <laughs> well, I'm really grateful, very flattered. Okay. And now I'm going to go write a bunch of essays. recording. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. This has been Fiona Winch with Alex Kramer on Thoughtful Intentions. Don't forget to follow the Thoughtful Intentions Instagram page at Thoughtful Intentions Podcast and wish us a happy anniversary. (laughs) It's tomorrow. Yay. I guess because, well, when this is coming out, it will be Wednesday, the 21st. I'm super excited. Um, And yeah, looking forward to the next year of content, episodes, stories, all the above.